coming up on this episode. And zoonotic diseases, broadly speaking, are diseases that are shared between humans and animals. And they move back and forth, actually. Uh, you, many times we think of these diseases as having come from animals to humans, and we call that spillover. But sometimes they spill back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kigori, a faculty member at Ohio University. Once again, I'm excited about having all these awesome guests um, that I have every month. And today we have a guest all the way from Minnesota, but he's also all the way from Kenya. Uh, and it's exciting to have, we're going to have a great conversation here about what he does. Um, so to get us started, I'll tell you more about him. Um, I met him just recently and I'm really fascinated by his work. So his name is Dr. Michael Mahero, who is a board certified public health and prevention medicine veter veterinarian. <laughs> whose breadth of knowledge includes expertise in public health, epidemiology of infectious diseases, animal health and food safety. He has a DVM, and he'll tell us more about that, from Makerere University in Uganda, um, an MS from North Dakota uh, State University, and a Master's of Public Health and PhD in Public Health and Epidemiology from the University of Minnesota. So as a public health and animal health professional. Can't wait to talk to him about that. <laughs> Just that relationship. Dr. Mahero has dedicated most of his career to understanding the dynamics of disease transmission at the human, animal, and environment interface. His research interests are in the control of zoonotic diseases at the human, livestock, wildlife confluence. And I, we will really dive into, you know, discussions about that, especially with COVID-19 and other zoonotic diseases. He's also worked as a technical advisor uh, on the U.S. aid-funded Emerging Pandemic Threats Program, where he built capacity for better prediction and control of emerging infectious diseases, and is a recipient of the National Institutes of Health Fogarty Global Health Fellowship. So he's done some fantastic work. Um, currently, he is an adjunct faculty at the College of Veterinary Medicine in University of Minnesota, and also does some work uh, with a number of um, stakeholders, and is also a director of the Veterinary Preventive Medicine and Public Health Residency at the College of Veterinary Medicine. So join me in welcoming Dr. Mahara to the show. <laughs> Thank you. So glad to have you here. I can't, I'm so excited to have this, you know, veterinary person. Yes. There have been so many questions about mm -hmm. zoonotic diseases and why is there so much increase in this, um, you know, transmission of diseases between animals and humans, just understanding how that relationship works. But before we dive into that, mm -hmm. how did you get here, right? What made you interested in this field? Why did you juxtapose that with public health? Right. What's your history? You know, how did you get to this point? Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Prof, and, and appreciate the opportunity to have a discussion about something that indeed has been 
in forefront in the media and also in a lot of discussions, whether at the dinner table, households in different countries, states, federal, international, um, the concept of disease control and disease sharing or movement between humans and animals. And, um, and, and, and my history, what brought me to this point uh, is, is fairly intertwined also and convoluted like, uh, like the whole process um, that involves this disease transmission. So I grew up in Kenya and um, uh, was, was very intrigued in, in medicine because I came from a family, I do come from a family with a lot of people in the sciences and, and that, that really intrigued me. Um, it, 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 uh, it fired a curiosity born within me, um, wondering how, what makes life move and what, what allows us to exist. And, uh, and as I grew, the, the interest in that complex interaction between humans and their pets and, and their livestock just grew and grew. As, as time as time went on but there are some specific elements around my path that allowed me to to get here and and I'll, and I'll share a few of them uh, one of them was uh, the fact that my grandfather had uh, had a dairy farm and so when I would go home for a vacation um, in the Great Rift Valley of Kenya uh, was always intrigued at uh, the idea of food and where food comes from. So that was very exciting. And it so happened that my uncle uh, is also a veterinarian. And so I would always ride on the truck with him as he did calls. And, um, and, and that was just simply fascinating. So having grown from a family with, with scientists and medical backgrounds, and then seeing you know, the production of food and, and the role of, li of, of livestock and how it intertwines with livelihoods and the passion that uh, people in our family, particularly my grandfather, my uncles and and, and aunts had about, about uh, livestock and, and the production of food really spurred me on to think about uh, a role in this in this sphere. And so and so that pushed me to think about taking sciences. I ended up in Makere University uh, because I wanted to explore the world beyond Kenya and uh, and ended up in vet school and and, and during vet school, I, I just, there was no turning back. Fascinated with the idea of understanding how biological systems work. And because in, medic, in veterinary school, we do a lot of comparative, comparative medicine and comparative sciences, since we take care of different species and, uh, and, and try to understand also how the human system works, just to compare um, the complexity of that interrelationship began to 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 grow in me and um, thereafter there were probably two following instances that really cemented it for me that yes i'm going to follow up on public health one was i was doing my clinical externship and uh, from uganda i went back to kenya i was working at a small animal hospital and all of a sudden we started seeing cases of of puppies coming in with uh, viral enteritis and uh, they had bloody diarrhea, and these were this, this, this were puppies that had been vaccinated against um, a disease that is usually very lethal towards puppies, towards dogs in general, but particularly puppies when they are young, and that's called parvovirus. And so we were wondering, why are all these puppies dying? 
and yet most of them seem to be vaccinated. And so that, that already started starring within me the, 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 the interest in patterns of disease and trying to become a sleuth of sorts to understand where does it come from and why do we have certain patterns of, of disease occurrence. And so after, after, after a while, we noticed that there was something unique about some of the puppies that came into the clinic that were not sick and those that were sick. And it was tied to the diet. The puppies that were sick were on a certain diet that had a corn-based, um, uh, that had corn-based ingredients, and those that were not were were being fed on rice. And and thereafter, we after after a lot of more diagnostic uh, investigations realized that it was a form of aflatoxin um, that is provided that is uh, developed or produced by, um, uh, by a fungus called Aspergillus flavus. And, and, and um, this was very interesting because all of a sudden through that epi kind of investigation, we were able to find out that that is the cause of the problem. Now, the interesting part is dogs usually have a very uh, low threshold for that disease, for that uh, toxicosis, and, but it also affects humans. And remember I told you it was a grain-based diet, and that grain is very popular for both humans and animals. Um, in Kenya, as you may well know, uh, ugali or cornmeal is, is a favorite uh, for many. And, 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 and a meal many times for many across the, the country is not complete without, without uh, ugali. And, um, and so we started trying to alert different stakeholders and tell them, hey, we are seeing this. And it seems it's upstream from the main source that might also find its way uh, on the human, human side. So that really got me intrigued because uh, several months or, you know, down the stream, there was also an occurrence of the same toxicosis in humans um, with, with some fatalities. And, and that's just cemented it for me thinking about how can I be at the intersection of human and animal health and support the protection of that? And then the last one was, as I was leaving vet school, I got an opportunity to work um, in conservation medicine, actually, looking at a, at, at a species of animal that is endangered called uh, the mountain gorillas and uh, thinking about how the interaction and the management of the environment around them uh, in southwestern Uganda uh, was... Um, was could potentially be a threat to to the existence, and so thinking about that complex interaction between humans, between animals, that is livestock and and wildlife, um, just got me got me intrigued, and and I started a path that brought me to the United States, and I've never looked back about public health and veterinary medicine. That is such a fantastic story. Um, and you've really provided um, a nice segue into now understanding why you are also in public health. You know, you got this mm -hmm. age, mm -hmm. you have a PhD in epidemiology, and, you know, taking from what you've talked about here about, you know, becoming an investigator, right? Yeah. Being interested yeah. in tracking diseases, that's what they do in epidemiology. But there are two things that I took note. You talked about how these animals or puppies were coming to you and they were vaccinated, but they were getting sick. 
Mm-hmm. Enter COVID-19, enter the flu. <laughs> <laughs> and those are things that I can't wait to talk about them just down sure. there. Um, and then you talked about diet. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, this is mm-hmm. like, this is what we do, right? right. So here you are lo- seeing the same patterns in yes. puppies. And it's the same things we are looking at uh, when you're looking at human health, right? Absolutely. Prevention. But then Absolutely. diet is such a big deal. So you said, okay, I will take my investigative self into public health, right? Right. Uh-huh. Anything you want to tell us about that journey uh, into public health? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was. Uh, it's, it's been an exciting journey, and um, and 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 part of it started actually in in Kenya, having worked for about two years or so. As a mixed animal practitioner, I I was just the the the, the epidemiology investigative bug had bitten me, and and it was uh, it was time to to respond to the call. Um, so it really started with an opportunity to work to do an internship at the Cambry um, Welcome Trust uh, Research Station down in in Kenya in Kenya in a in a town called Kilifi. And this was purely a medical research institution. I was really interested in some of the developed um, uh, the, the, the development in medical investigation, in epidemiology, and, uh, and and the ability to hone those skills. So that was fantastic because it allowed me to understand that I can use the tools that I've been given as a veterinarian to be able to protect human life. And, and that was just mind boggling. Um, yes, we were looking at at humans and thinking about um, hemoglobinopathies and and how they are distributed in human populations and how that has an effect on malaria cases and 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 I thought, man, you know, my biology brain, my investigator brain, all of this can be put together. How much more if I leaned in um, and 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 was able to to focus on on diseases that are actually at the interface um, affecting humans and animals. So after that wonderful exposure, I started a pathway into the United States to really focus on those on those opportunities and uh, looked at the food system, got excited thinking about food safety, and then started an MPH at the University of Minnesota. And at the same time, did a residency in preventive medicine and public health. So that is where I really honed my skills in thinking about human-animal interaction and prevention of disease across that interface, but also the container where they both exist, which is the environment. Um, So there's a fantastic program at the University of Minnesota, which is a residency program that that, that really allows us to to dive deep into real-life problems. And we step in as training as trainees as a, as a trainee back then as a resident uh, working with the community i worked with with cattle producers looking at antimicrobial resistance and how to prevent that um worked with with, with leafy greens uh, producers and and thinking about some of this um food safety pathogens that are found in our leafy greens and how can we be able to manage that um came back and and and, and worked with um with with uh, with with smallholder cattle producers uh, very far away from the United States in central in Eastern Europe, 
again, looking at bacteria that can find its way through milk to humans. And, and all these opportunities just uh, deepened my desire to, to really be um, focused on that interface, knowing that it's, it is dynamic, it is exciting, but it's also delicate. And if not managed well, can result in um, death or illness on both ends. So that's that's how I got here. I did a master's in public health through the University of Minnesota. And with that mentorship, through the residency and the didactic training through um, the master's of public health program at the School of Public Health here in Minnesota, I started a journey on public health that I have never looked back. So that's how I found myself in public health and in this field. I, I really like that story because you've literally gone full circle. Yes, uh, ma'am. <laughs> you know what's in the environment. You've worked with plants. You've yes. worked with animals. And now you're working mm. with human beings. Like, this is amazing. You know, right. so your depth of knowledge um, it really provides nuances uh, when it comes to some of these infectious diseases. And speaking of infectious diseases, I want to us to understand what are zoonotic diseases, right? And how have they evolved over time? Because you've given us a good overview of how, you know, this animal and human diseases interface. So I want my listeners and viewers to sort of have a basic understanding of what we call zoonotic diseases and how, how do we jump from sure. an animal to a human while they are very mild, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the animals and then humans, they cause all these catastrophic uh, challenges, right? Right. Great, um, g- great question. Great question. Uh, first of all, I'll start with uh, zoonotic diseases. What zoonotic diseases? Is, not wow. to go into a lot of the technicality. Broadly speaking, are diseases that are shared between humans and animals, um, and 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 they move back and forth. Actually, uh, you, many times we think of diseases that that move these diseases as having come from animals to humans, but and we call that spillover where we have a spillage from a reservoir population or an animal host into a human host. So they spill over. Um, But sometimes they spill back into the animal population. So it's a bi-directional movement um, between hosts that are susceptible. And, And that's what zoonoses are. Sometimes you may have a reservoir that is inanimate that might be in the environment. That's a little bit more technical. We we don't call it zoonosis, but it's there. For example, there are certain fungal diseases that affect both humans and animals, but the common source is the environment. So when you see animals and humans coming down with some of those infections, for example, a fungal disease called blastomycosis, then you know that I need to investigate the environment because it says something about the shared environment of those two hosts. But for the most part, zoonotic diseases are those diseases that are shared between humans and animals and can move both ways from animals to humans, which is what we often know, but they can spill back um, to, to animals as well from humans. 
But you ask another fascinating question, which was, why then does this happen? So the thing is, a lot of these pathogens have always been there for millennia. The difference or the unique element is when it jumps from a known host to a naive host. Like all pathogens, many times for them to exist, they co-evolve with the hosts. They have to, they have to evolve with the host in such a way that they come to an understanding. It's almost as though you have a friend or a, or a cubemate. For you to be able to exist and coexist together, you have to have an understanding. And if not, then one person will leave the arrangement. And so that's how viruses and bacteria and pathogens have been able to exist over time. And so you will find that many times in the reservoir species, they have co-evolved over a long period selected for a species or a subset of the species that is able to withstand the pathogenic effects of the, of the virus or the bacteria or the fungus. And with time, are able to come with this stable relationship that allows us to coexist like helpful or happy roommates. But sometimes there's that spillover. And we can go deeper into what facilitates the spillover but when they spill over into a naive population, then you have problems because the population has not developed, does not have the memory, its immune system does not have the memory that allows it to protect itself against that invading pathogen. And so when we have that initial spillover, we have a lot of mortality, but then there's co-evolution, there's memory that is built in that host population, in this case, humans, and with time, yes, we lose some people, but it evolves towards a less pathogenic strain because pathogens are smart. They don't want to burn themselves out of existence. So they have to hit a certain equilibrium. And so that is why we have the situation where there's a spillover, there's a catastrophic event, event but within some time, it sort of settles towards an optimum or an equilibrium and then we start thinking, oh, it's not that bad, you know. And many times we also have interventions that, are, you know, that helps us sort of fast track that process. And some of those interventions include vaccines that help protect on both sides. So spillover, spillback, naive population evolve towards an equilibrium to be happy roommates. So that's why. I like that that analogy there. Uh, And I think that sort of breaks that uh, mystery and the fear Mm -hmm. that people have when um, they're in a class, an epidemiology class, and trying to understand what all those terminologies mean. So thank you for (laughs) just real language, right, in real time. Thank you. When we have this happening, and as you are talking, I'm thinking, okay, this is why COVID had all these strains and then mm. there was projections that one strain is more lethal than the other. Exactly. But then when COVID started, Africa was not greatly impacted, but everybody on the West was. Mm-hmm. And so those are things, again, I'm just I'm holding my breath here because we, we need to talk about and understand how that happened. Sure. But when we look at public health, what, what measures can we take? Um, and vaccination is one of them. Sure. But what else can we do 
instead of having sort of those stopgap and knee-jerk reactions that cost a lot of money, what can we do over time to minimize or mitigate um, this negative impact? Sure. There are a couple of things that we can do. One is to invest in, um, in the science, stay ahead of the curve, to understand and come up with strategies that allow us when the need is when the need arises to be able to quickly to quickly respond. So investing in that and talking about COVID, you know, some of the technologies, the mRNA technologies, um, had been had been explored, you know, several years back and, and really helped us to ramp up and quickly come up with vaccines really in record time to be able to provide a barrier, an immune barrier. Uh, for the human population. So I think that's one very, very important thing, investing in in science and research and staying ahead ahead of the curve. I think the second thing that um, that we can do is uh, is adopting a one health approach. And what does that mean? That means coming up with strategies that allow us to work across different disciplines. Whereas I'm a veterinarian, you know, a medical individual, a nutritionist, a public health, a community specialist, a behavioral um, specialist, you know, all this, these tools, a nurse, uh, an engineer, an environmental health uh, practitioner kind of come together and develop plans and systems that allow us, first of all, to have a shared understanding of the problem. You see, the challenge with public health is we deal with complex problems, multifaceted, um, multi-dimensional problems that affect different populations and different strata. So that's, those are complex, those are complex problems. And sometimes one solution that we discover may have unintended consequences in a different direction, you know? So when we approach it unilaterally, many times, we run into unintended consequences that can have even worse outcomes than than the problem we have fixed or is looking to fix because of a a unilateral style of action. So coming together and having a shared appreciation of what the problem is. Uh, I usually give this example when, when talking to folks. I talk about it like the elephant, you know, Everyone will tell you, well, this elephant, oh, the elephant is cylindrical and long, tortuous and flexible. I say, no, 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 no. It's actually firm and has a pointed tip because they're hanging onto, onto the tusks. And somebody else says, no, it's flat and has, you know, a lot of veins and, and flaps, flips, flaps from time to time because they're in the ear and one on the tail and the leg. And they're all this different understanding of the same, same element. And so coming together to have that shared understanding is important. The second thing is having that shared understanding, develop tools that allow you to cast a shared vision and say, okay, given that this is the shared understanding, what is our true north as a team? Identify that true north. And then how do we have shared action so that I'm not, I'm not, we're, we're not duplicating each other's efforts. We are not uh, interfering or competing, um, but we are complementing and creating sustainable solutions. So I think that's an important thing that public health has to do 
to be able to stay ahead of these complex problems. The first thing I talked about is investing in the science and staying ahead of it. The second one is thinking a lot more about how we work across disciplines, sort of that One Health action. And then one more I would say is in reinvesting in people and refocusing on people um, and thinking about how our science impacts people. And in terms of people, there are maybe one or two things I would like to, to highlight. One is making sure that our public health interventions um, involve people in, in ground truthing, so a very participatory approach. And then the next thing is that we take people's social and cultural elements or, or realities into, into, uh, into consideration when we're developing, when we're developing solutions. On the flip side, our communication also needs to be consistent and simple. So when we're thinking about people, think about how to involve them and impact them, but also think about creatively how to communicate in a manner that is consistent at the same time is simple. And that would support action taking. So those three things I would say, we could go on and on, but those quickly come to mind. No, I, I like those those three things, especially that part about communication mm -hmm. and keeping it simple. Um, I think one rule of science is, you know, what I learned in school, keeping, we had this K-I-S-S, keep it stupid simple, right? Uh, because the challenges we've ran against are people resisting the word science, um, including our politicians and including right. uh, people who are charged with uh, making policies that are important in enhancing sustainable interventions. And so science has become this word that is such a trigger thanks to all the drama, for lack of a better word, that we had uh, with figuring out what to do with COVID. Um, and I feel like COVID has been this amazing, COVID-19 has been this amazing lab, uh, real life lab to rethink how we, you know, we do public health and, you know, that unilateral uh, way of thinking that you are bringing out. We made so many mistakes. Oh my God, <laughs> so many mistakes um, on one hand. On the other mm -hmm. hand, we created such great awareness about public health um, and the importance of basic things like washing hands and wearing masks. And that it became extremely pervasive and everybody's so bad <laughs> after the fact. And we're still struggling. We're still fighting COVID. Um, but, you know, we have reached a place where people feel like they can live with it. Um, but I don't think we're re really out of danger right now. And before we dig into COVID, um, has there been any other zoonotic disease <laughs> that is as bad as what we've seen this three years with COVID? You know, has there been anything like that? That that's my first question, and then we'll move um, into a dis further discussion about that. Sure. Um... You are right that uh, COVID has allowed us to focus our attention. It's it's gripped the attention of of um, the global population in ways that have not been done ever before. And 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 actually, my thoughts on why that was the case. 
to answer your question about have there been other events in the past? They have actually, probably not the same same scale, but um, but they have um, going all the way back to the 1300s when we had the um, bubonic plague as it found itself on you know uh, through sailors that came via the Black Sea and docked on on the shores of uh, of Europe and um, and 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 and, and these you know ships that kept sailing in and immediately they came the people were astounded because they found everyone on this ship you know basically dead or almost almost you know practically dying uh, with boils and a very horrific death shifted back you know the, the the authorities at that time declared no the ships need to go back um and um and and basically leave their shores but it was too late because you know um pathogens are really smart and they know how to look for new places to live i told you about the principle of survival you know once the host dies they look for another one and they're very smart at doing that and uh, and and so it spread. So, so bacterial disease, it's called Yersinia pestis, uh, spread by a flea. Um, most of the time, it's it's in the wild, in prairie dogs and and rodents and and sometimes wild cats. But once in a while, it finds its way to your domestic cat. And and in this case, it found itself into human beings, which is that spillover. And it, it it ended up in about 20 million deaths back then, which in terms of the gravity of or, or the proportion, uh, some texts talk about about a third of the world's population at that time. So 1300, we've had the ancient scriptures that talk about anthrax. And for those who are um, readers of of holy scriptures, they, they they do talk about some of the the accounts back when when Moses was leaving uh, was leaving Egypt, and 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 they talk of some of the diseases that affected the cattle. Um, various people have postulated that uh, some of those diseases were actually zoonotic diseases, specifically anthrax. Anthrax is it's a bacterial disease, continues to affect many people um, over you know across the world and. And, and even right now, but its impact was not as large, has not as large because of drugs that have been developed. Another one that I would want to quickly put in was the pandemic flu, the 1918 pandemic flu. And um, that was also fairly large. And, and because it was coincided with, um, with the World War One, then we had people take it from certain places, they call it the Spanish flu, but we can debate whether it truly started in Spain. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 suffice it to say, it was picked from one part of the country and of the world and translocated to other parts of the world because of the movement of soldiers, and and so that also was a pandemic. Um, it, it literally affected large parts, large swaths of the of the globe, and and we we'll continue to have. You know, uh, in the 50s, uh, more recently we've had SARS, but all of them have been fairly contained compared to COVID-19. So why COVID-19 different, right? 
Um, one is, this is a naive pathogen that has found, not, not a naive pathogen, a pathogen that has found a naive population. And, but that happened also in the past. But the difference is, because of technological advances, our ability to move from one part of the world to another part of the world has really increased exponentially compared to 1918 or the 1300s. And so now what, what would take somebody probably several months would take another a couple of hours to be able to move from the Americas all the way to Africa or to Asia. And, and that has just improved the ability of pathogens to move even more efficiently across the globe. So that is what fueled um, the kind of impact that we saw COVID-19 have. The other part of it is social media or, or media in general. And so people are more aware. Uh, people are more aware of what's happening. There was a greater sense of a global connection through these digital platforms. And, and so it was heightened in our minds as much as it was heightened in our bodies. And so I think that the duality of the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic um, has, has lifted it in terms of, of pandemics compared to those, those in the past. The ability to move quickly, not only of the pathogen, but information about the pathogen. So this pathogen and its movement, mm -hmm. it's left behind distraction, right? And the one thing that we were trying to understand, I've had a few people come on the show when COVID was hot. It's still hot, but when yeah. it started and we're trying to really understand why Africa was spared, literally, right. the whole of 2020. Um, and then things turned for the worst. How do these strains work? That's what I think most people want to understand. You know, we have the vaccine and we're like, let's rush everybody, get inoculated. And then, oh, there's another strain. We have to rethink this. How does this work with the strains? And I know you said that the pathogens are smart and yeah. they're always trying to sort of figure out how else to cause havoc, for lack of a better word. Um, right. But... First of all, with Africa, we know that we have become really good at dealing with um, such kinds of um, <clears throat> diseases. I mean, Ebola, we did a great job with that. Okay. It left in its path a lot of deaths, but I think there are systems in place. So we, that was the argument that Africa had already set itself up to mitigate um, any additional um, challenges that would come from any other, you know, disease like this or pandemic like this, but not in the West. So what are your thoughts? I want to get to know your thoughts. You, <laughs> who has gone around the world, who has done help, help in animals, plants, and humans. Right. Tell me what your thoughts are there. Um, I have several thoughts. I think, um, let me take segments of, of your question. Uh Perhaps start with the last question and move upwards. You know, was Africa prepared? Yes, uh, in, in, to to an extent, <laughs> to an extent, and 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 we also have to be careful not to um, 
to treat Africa as this monolithic, uh, um, this this monolithic region, right? It's it's fairly diverse and has its nuances, but for the most part, in terms of having worked through other fairly um, lethal or impactful diseases, yes, people had been made aware. The idea of working across across uh, disciplinary boundaries was not new, and um, and and in fact, in some cases, people had structures, a few structures in place to help support that. Um, Ebola, for example, both in West Africa and Central Africa and East Africa, uh, they they had been capacity built across the across the the, the region to to support field epidemiology, um, to probably contribute towards early warning systems, but, but, but particularly the field epidemiology, which is what you want, boots on ground, uh, people who have been, been, been exposed to working with, um, with lethal pathogens such as this, so the infection control part of it, and making sure the disease does not spread once it's in a, it's in a locality, or once you have people in an institution who are infected. So these ideas of infection control, um, field epidemiology, epidemiology in, in general, and sensitization of, 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 of leaders and, 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 and response systems in general was really important. I think what goes along with it is also the receptivity of the communities towards intervention measures for the most part until a lot of the, you know, the, the conversation about, about um, um, COVID-19 became fairly political. But, but also, the, you know, like the receptivity of people to, to, to the idea that this is a lethal pathogen and we need to control it, I, I think was a little bit higher and better because of previous experiences. People have, have, have lived through um, Ebola, Marburg, for those in the Central Central African region or West African region, for us in the East African region, things like Rift Valley, you know, people have grappled with those with those uh, uh, hemorrhagic diseases and how to manage them. And so people are receptive when they say this is the direction we want to to go. And I usually say public health is a team spirit or team uh, is a team um, team sport that that requires people to come together and um, both responders, but also the community. So I think that helped quite quite a bit. The part that was challenging is sometimes the resources. Yes, there were you know, the technical teams and this, but I think the resources and ramping up um, and making sure they were well facilitated, that perhaps could have affected or affected the response once cases started rising, as opposed to places with a lot more, a lot more resources. So, so, so I think that's the the question about was Africa better prepared? I think in some instances, yes, and um, and in fact, in some instances, there are people who um, were historically involved with some of these diseases, whether from a bench science perspective or from a field epidemiology perspective, whose thoughts and voices um, were either consulted or referred to um, in terms of providing solutions for the global community. Shifting gears a little bit and looking at, um, at, at you know, COVID-19, 
and and why Africa was spared initially. Yes, awareness, but then it goes back to travel and trade, right? A lot of the countries where which were which were hard hit, um, uh, larger metro cities, more compact together, um, more open and connected to the global uh, international circuit, and so the possibility of exposure of people and people kind of infecting and reinfecting each other is higher and so so that was um that was something that spared africa or certain sections of africa for for a while just because of that movement was not as higher and the exposure to the global um uh sort of global travel was not was not as high and um and I think that helped. That helped at least, at least initially. And if you look at, uh, you know, talk to folks back home, and they would tell me, uh, you know, people went back to to the villages, and uh, and and they didn't want people from the city coming there because uh, because we don't want COVID. So it's although simulated on a small scale, it's very similar to what was happening at um, at at a global level, at a global level as well. Um, and, and and even if you look at the numbers, uh, when all is said and done, uh, people had predicted a catastrophic event in in Africa because of the health systems, or in in many places, in some places, especially in rural, limited access, limited resource areas, um, where the health systems might not be as strong. Um, they had predicted a catastrophic impact, but it wasn't. It it never turned out that way. And uh, the jury is still out on why that is. There are many speculations. Um, some schools of thought, you know, look at it and say, well, people have been exposed to a lot of these pathogens uh, in, in some of these regions. And, um, and, 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 and others may say, well, people are always on prophylaxis of, uh, of, of, of um, anti-malarials, which would have a certain anti-inflammatory effect and supportive effect towards um, the impacts of COVID-19. So there are many thoughts that are out there, and I think the jury is still still out on what what really, um, how <laughs> Africa uh, was spared. But I think the, the structure of our cities, the fact that we have a lot of people perhaps in the communities and uh, sort of agri-based in in the villages was also very, very, very protective in a way because it kept people away from each other. Agreed. I also think the speed at which um, measures were put in place that really played a key role. And that's because obviously they're used to having these kinds of pandemics, pandemics, whatever, you know, whatever Absolutely. category you want to put them in. And so they were like, oh, no, we're not taking any, um, any risks, any risks, any chance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, I think the sort of that blanket authority that everybody's going to do what is best for public health. Absolutely. Outside of, it's our, you know, sometimes it's our right to decide <laughs> this or the other. But um, in some of these places, it's yeah. is that authoritative. <laughs> Rule um, of the law. <laughs> Rule of the law. Uh, but something else that people have observed is now there's, again, an increase in um, flu cases. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are starting to see that wearing those masks wasn't a bad idea. Um, pushing hands often wasn't a bad idea. Um, and, you know, now with the change of weather, everybody's coughing all over the place. Everybody just has all these respiratory issues. So there is some truth to some of these basic protective measures that we put out in public health. They may be a nuisance. They may be annoying, um, but they do go a long way in, again, minimizing the impact, the negative impact of these diseases. Right. And and you, you mentioned something you know, really, really important. The fact that um, these were basic, basic measures, but they go a long way. And and the willingness, like we say, public health is a team sport. The willingness of communities to say, "Well, they told us this. We we better follow." Um, that that made a difference. And no, I agree with you that that you know, when all is said and done, a lot of these basic measures can be able to really help quite a bit. And it's important that we don't discard sort of those primary measures of public health uh, for the shiny balls that would come by in terms of, you know, um, more modern and the important complementary. Very true. So quickly here, as we start winding down, I, you know, looked at some of the work that you're doing and I was very interested uh, with this relationship or association. So you do focus on common and emerging infectious diseases. And in your work, you say that the escalation of such infectious diseases in humans and animals can be connected to the disruption of the ecosystem and the biodiversity. So now we're touching on the environmental part of your work. (laughs) We have come full circle. Yes, ma'am. Tell us more about that. It's very interesting for me. Um, yes, indeed. And um, I had the the, uh, the privilege of working in in fantastic communities, uh, frontline communities across the globe, but particularly in East and Central Africa, places of high biodiversity, where we're seeing high human animal interaction, pristine areas, wonderful bucolic places. You um, that. Uh, that make me very excited about getting to work because I'm like, I could do this all year long out here, talking to people, talking about improving health and, and breathing the beautiful fresh air. And, um, and at the same time, these areas are rapidly changing. So your question is, how would ecosystem disruption contribute to emergence of these diseases? Well, Think of it as um, as a container that holds all of us. And, and when you crack the container or you disfigure the container, then the contents will have a problem. And I think that's where we are in terms of that balance between human-animal health and the environment for a couple of reasons. Destruction of the... Um, so, for example, in some of these places, we have a disruption of of um, some of the habitats where animals live, habitats where wild animals live. Um, Some of them have traditional corridors, wildlife pathways that they've used and they'll continue to use even if you destroy it and start planting vegetables there, they will still pass through because they remember that this was our road from 
feeding site A to feeding site B or from breeding site A to breeding site B. And, and when you disrupt those pathways, those habitations, then the conflict or the opportunity for conflict increases. That conflict can be physical conflict where people are angry because these animals now are destroying their livelihood or these animals are, are killing you know, their, their livestock or, or even harming them because of that physical interaction. And so that could be physical, um, but, but it also could be increased interaction where now diseases can be able to jump because livestock now are coming close to human and human dwelling. And, and that might be perhaps interacting with uh, wildlife is interacting with livestock or, or wildlife is interacting more and more with humans. Um, where because of that exposure, there's perhaps more optic, more poaching, more interaction, and, and that exposes humans to an increased probability or possibility of disease transmission. Where previously, these were places that were hidden and you know animals that were hidden in the forest and not coming in contact with human beings. Now, because of that disruption in the environment, where we are moving to places as humans that we really should not have been moving into, we're seeing that increased contact and in many cases, increased probability for disease transmission. Very interesting analogy there. Um, mm -hmm. An explanation with that, because often we don't realize um, our encroachment yeah. and how destructive as human beings we can be um, and we've really taken over a lot of land as we expand because obviously right. population has increased. Uh, we're building more roads and we're encroaching on the land that, you know, these wild animals also feeding places for our domestic animals. And it's important that we take into account um, and find a balance. You know, there's nothing wrong with expanding and being industrialized, but yes. what, what is the impact system? Right. We need to be responsible. Speaking mm -hmm. of responsibility, so we've talked about this, bi you know, biodiversity and animals and humans. What are the policy implications? You know, you talked about investing in science and now we have leaders who don't like the word science, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe say investing in people, maybe say, here's how you're saving money, right? right. right. So. What, are, what do you think are the policy implications? What would you tell uh, uh, policymakers um, to help understand what public health is, what zoonotic diseases are, what the ecosystem and biodiversity, how all that plays a role mm -hmm. in um, influencing not just our health, but also how we are utilizing um, our resources, right? And the funds right. that we get. Right. There's nothing better than investing in prevention. Um, the, the challenging thing, and I think this goes back to communication for us, the challenging thing is that when you get really good at, 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 at preventing, then, then people lose sight of the reason why you are investing in the prevention. And so it's one of those jobs that you can work yourself out of a job 
by being very successful at it. And uh, and I think um, I, I think that's uh, that's important. So how do we how can we convey or communicate to different stakeholders, particularly decision makers, about why this is important? I think referring back to the past and providing metrics uh, of success, but also um, uh, metrics of the impact of some of this. Uh, this, this diseases, particularly zoonotic diseases. And I'll give you just a, a quick example. I think, for example, looking at not only the immediate impact of, um, of COVID-19, but some of the downstream uh, effects. I was, uh, you know, doing some work with uh, some, some of my research or some of the research work I've supported, uh, evaluated to try to understand disruptions in supply chains because of COVID-19 and what that meant for some of the scientific and diagnostic communities. And so capturing some of those nuanced impacts that are related to the central uh, outbreak or to the central disease process is important in terms of um, communicating to, to leaders. So I would highlight the comprehensive picture that looks not only at the human illness, which is important, but the downstream ramifications of having a global pandemic such as this one. So take, for example, just recently we had a highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak in, in the United States, which gratefully has been controlled. Um, HPAI have the potential of infecting humans, so they have that zoonotic potential, depending on the strain. This one was not a public health concern, as did not have a public health element although we usually monitor very closely when these illnesses happen. And highly pathogenic avian influenza is a disease that's really lethal to birds. You know, talking about hosts, reservoirs, and, 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 and people. In this case, the people are not affected as much. A sniffle here, probably some um, uh, respiratory effects, but for the, for the birds, it, it, was, it was fatality. Domestic birds. But for wild birds, it isn't. This is a reservoir species. So particularly waterfowls. And, and what, 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 what do I want to emphasize here? The, the effect of having that sweep through our country for the past, it started, I think, um, just as we were getting to the summer, and uh, getting out of spring into summer. Um, for the past couple of months, and the last one I think was last outbreak was seen probably last year, last month, somewhere in the south, in Tennessee actually. And, and so, I mean, just a couple of months, and we lost about three point three point three billion. Um, one out of lost trade because of restrictions of um, you can't sell your poultry products but also because of uh, the control itself and the impact it's having on the poultry birds. So that's just an example of, yes, it's a zoonotic disease. People say, why should we invest in it? But because of the trade, uh, the money implications, behind the money implications are livelihoods. Behind the livelihoods are people. And for politicians, behind people are votes. So they will listen. Awesome, awesome. So. As we close, what has been 
one memorable event in your life or in your work that you would like to share? Oh, I'm spoiled for choices. <laughs> um, since you said one, I'm a good student. I'll pick one. <laughs> and uh, and I'll talk about, uh, it's actually interesting because it's uh, it's really the, 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 the birth of my, of my, um, of my nephews, right? my, my, my brother and, and sister um, were blessed with, uh, my brother and his wife were blessed with, uh, with two wonderful boys. And, and, when they, and when they were born, it was, it was an amazing feeling of realizing that um, the next generation is here and, uh, and that I'm not a leader of tomorrow, I'm a leader of today. <laughs> but why is that relevant? to what we've talked about today. I think it, it heightened my sense of being a good steward, a good steward of the resources that have been given to me as a scientist, as a practitioner, and, and, as, a, and, and as a good citizen of, of the world. Um, but, but also my stewardship of the environment and this complex interaction of humans, animals, and that container called the environment, because we were passed on the baton and given a place that we could call home called the universe. And I think we need to do the same to the generation that is coming after us. So that was a, a life-changing moment that reminded me of the importance of public health. I, I like that. And I, you know, we don't think about it that way, but I really like how that one, it's very challenging um, in really encouraging us to be responsible um, with the world. And, you know, we can even look at the world like this ever-growing baby uh, and the impact we have in feeding this baby and being responsible stewards, right, um, in this world that we're in. So... I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. I learned a lot. Um, thank you. Always been fascinated by that relationship, you know, ecosystem, animals, humans, mm -hmm. so intertwined, so interfaced. And I'll definitely call on you again. Um, hopefully, we're not going to have another one, but we know. Infectious <laughs> diseases, public health, epidemiology, you know, there's going to be something, hopefully not to this magnitude, Right. Uh, we've had to deal with COVID um, and hopefully we've learned a few things here um, from these three years of you know continuously dealing with COVID not that it's over but just the newness of it um, right. and the right. changing nature of this um, strain so mm -hmm. have yourself a great evening and also thanks to the listeners and the viewers and uh, yeah we shall be back here again with an exciting episode uh, about matters related to public health. So thanks so much, Dr. Mahero, um, and wishing you all the best as you help save the world, right? <laughs> Thank you. No mean task. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.